Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Welcome along to 2023 Legends. I hope it is a year full of health, happiness and love for you all. And that episode 171 of the Howie Games Part A featuring tennis legend Todd Woodbridge gives you a big lift. A lovely little cameo of a match and the Woodies display once again why they're the best pair in the world. Woody is always mentioned alongside Woody. The two Woodies, Todd and Mark, the pair dominating doubles tennis in the 90s and early 2000s. But there is even more to Todd's professional career than this combination. Plus, there is his life away from the court, things that I had absolutely no idea about that Todd was happy to speak openly about to help others. That's the type of fellow he is. I don't actually know Todd very well. I occasionally see him around the traps at sporting events and say g'day, but Todd is such a warm, unassuming, smiley character that it's always nice to see him as he is one of those rare people that makes you feel really good after a chat. Unfailingly polite, always engaged and generous with his time. He's the type of dude people walk away from thinking, what about that Woody bloke? Sporting legend, but just such a nice bloke. That is Todd. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes I also admire Todd tremendously for taking his broadcast career away from just tennis, entering other sports like golf and cricket. It's not an easy gig. It is not an easy gig. Audiences can be hypercritical when commentators cross sports, but Todd's done it with dedication, attention to detail and a smile. You can see Todd on Nine's most excellent summer of tennis right now. The other thing about Woody... The man does not age. He is like Benjamin Button. Doesn't age at all. Todd has got it all. Enjoy the story of Todd Woodbridge, OIM, an all-rounder at life. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on, children, try with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. Welcome to the Howie Games, a man that I think is a superstar on the television we'll get to. We could run through how many tennis tournaments he's won, but we would be here all day. Todd Woodbridge, it's great to see you, mate. Thanks for coming in. How are you going? Good, Howie. Um, n- nice to be on, actually, with you, because... A lot of people talk about how you do such a great job at this and, um, you know, I listen a little bit myself and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to unravelling my life. Yeah, well, there's so much to talk about. Um, It's it's funny, a mutual friend of ours, David Evans, has been telling me for quite a while, um, you need to get Todd on because there's a lot more to his life than tennis. Um, So I'm looking forward to it as well. It's You know what? I uh, Without name dropping right off the top, Woody, I spent four years trying to get Kelly Slater on this show, my sporting hero. And when he's won 11 world surf titles, I had to say to him, mate, normally we go through your big achievements, but we haven't got seven days. And, and when I look at you, like nine times you've won Wimbledon. Like you get Ash Barty on here and half, half of it is about winning Wimbledon, but you've won everything so often that <laughs> I, I don't know how deep to get into tennis because like, you, you've won it all. 83 ATP doubles titles, 
16 Grand Slam men's doubles, six Grand Slam mix. You've been to a semi-final on your own. You're just a tennis freak, Woody. I think I think when you look at that, I had to do a lot of it with someone. I would have loved to have done more on my own. Right. That that that's the one thing that I really was there to do. But I understood at a really young age that I was really good at one part of our sport, which was uh, which was playing doubles. It was it's an art form and and that kind of it was a niche that I knew I had from about 11 years of age. Hmm. And so it was something that was unique in my own career, but it wasn't what I wanted to do in its entirety. I, I just wanted to be a, an, an entire tennis player. And, and, and that means that you're good, brilliant, excelling at singles, doubles, and mixed. Um, and I, I suppose as I get older now, I look back on the records that you're just looking at going, ooh, it, it was pretty good. It was pretty intense. And I, I, I've been told recently... <laughs> I'm an intense type of guy. I've really? heard that from other people, which I don't think I am. I, I think I have think an that. ability to be intense and to switch off, and I like to be able to do both because I've learned that's how I operate a little bit better. It keeps me mm. more, more comfortable. But I look back on, you talk about nine Wimbledons. Nine, man. Like, it's getting greedy, <laughs> including. Should the, have been 10, by the oh, way. Oh, so, so and, and I think this will be the gist of you because people, when you get to your level, Grant Hackett style, it's the ones that they didn't win that, that well, keep them up at I night. Know, I know Mark Woodford and I look back on six in a row, which would have been brilliant. We'd won, um, uh, we'd won five in a row and we lost 10 8 in the fifth in the final. And we had our we had our oh. sort of sniff of chances in that match as a big long match. So that would have been six in a row. And I still look back at that one thinking, oh. Why, why didn't See, this is obviously why you were so good because you could have come and talked about the five in a row, yeah. but straight away you've gone to the sixth one. Before we get to tennis, yes, uh, I don't know if it was last weekend, it was the first weekend, you undertook what I've always thought for me would be the hardest job in TV, and that is reading the sports news, often auto-cue, and bringing personality to it. Well done. Thank you. Like, seriously... Yeah. Well done, man. Well, that was an adrenaline rush. Um, and, Take me through it. Take me through it. And a massive challenge. Well, I've always, I've always wanted to have a, a post career that wasn't all about tennis. Mm. And um, just recently, someone had a crack at me because I was doing the Australian Open golf, the PGA and Australian Open golf, and I know golf well. And it was this like that's a tennis player. Well. I spent 17 years as a fully fledged pro, plus the junior years leading into that as tennis. But I've also nearly done 17 years of media, mm. post playing, which has encompassed a whole variety of things. So, this I got asked to do would you be interested in reading a bit of news, see how you go? And that was a few months ago. And I said, yep, oh, I, I'd, I'd give it a go. I know it's dangerous. So dangerous. Um, I know, so dangerous. I know I could uh, fall on my sword if I, you know, get it wrong. But I guess that's my makeup is, okay, I'm going to challenge it and see how it goes. So as you mentioned, a week ago was my first foray into it. I'd prepped. I'd done screen tests, the whole works, you know, full makeup, tie done up properly, <laughs> top button. And I really, it actually looked all right. And if I, if I looked at the screen test and go, no, nah, no, nah, not for me. I wouldn't have even gone near it. So you came away from the screen test feeling pretty good. Yeah. And then you go live, which is... <laughs> so for people so that I, don't work in TV, explain yeah. how it happens. Well, first of all, I'd never even worked in 
the computer system that they now have, which is incredibly brilliant, where you've got to get in and you can write your own wording just to be sure you can say the word and they don't put too many things in a row that you can't get out um, <laughs> because someone else writes the script. Yes. So um, getting into that was the first key in the afternoon. So I got in three or four hours early, um, only... 20% of the stories had been written and logged at that point. So I'm sitting there all afternoon going, what are you giving me next? Uh, are we into AFL? <laughs> How's the cricket going? Um, and and then, you, then you start to go, oh, I've got to get all the names right. You know, you can't say someone's name wrong or a country's name wrong. You have to get that in. So look, I, I, I read as many as I could before I got on. And, and as television is, particularly live, there was a breaking story about a minute before I went on, and that was the AFL fixtures coming out for next year. I'm going, okay. oh, here we go. Here we go, here we go. And so, you know, when you read off Autocue, I've always, in my television career, worked off the pitches. The pitches come, and then you work your commentary or your delivery. Yes. In news, you drive the pitches. Yes. So you are in front of every every story that's coming, and if you pause or wait, everything is out of timing. And that was what I learned straight away. And you have to be listening and concentrated. And I, I recently got myself a, uh, an Apple watch. And in my first read, my heart rate went to 110. <laughs> I, you were keeping an eye on it. Well, what, I looked what, at it what's after. What's resting? What's resting? Resting for me is about 55. So you've doubled your heart rate. <laughs> yes. I like that. So that tells you exactly um, where the adrenaline kicks in and how you react when you're in those situations. Right, so um, so 110. 110. And then by the time I got into the, the full news reading, I, I came back to around about 80 and I was consistently there. But it was it was fun. Um, and yep, I had a couple of little stumbles to be, to be fair. But what I've learned over the time in television is that, that becomes natural as long as you don't panic and you get through it all right. And so that'll be my challenge as I move forward in, you know, going next, next couple of weekends. So did you... I had Grant Hackett on this podcast yep. and, and he told amazing stories about a bit what you alluded to at the start. He he talked about silver medals being disgusting, which was a strong word, but he also talked about his experience reading the news where he was thrown in and he tried to be a newsreader and he wasn't himself and he tried a different voice and in his words, he was absolutely terrible at it. Yep. D- did you get any advice and did you try and be Woody that would hang out with his friends socially and be a relaxed character or did you try and go into right I have to be a newsreader type um, of fellow? Well I'm a pretty I'm a I'm a pretty sort of um not conservative is not the right word, but I'm I enjoy being um right and making the right decisions, right rules, those types of things and not yep. going too much off tangent. So that was sort of easy for me to sit. The one bit of advice I got was that I've been used to doing promos and selling tennis and being commentary where we really get into, oh, what a shot. Yep. Here we go. Yep, 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 yep. And that's not the news. No. Your, your job at the news is to bring interest to the story that sells the package. And so I had to pull back a little bit and be a little bit more like myself in conversation and probably still working to get to that mode. But where I'm actually talking to you as the viewer, like I am talking to you now, is how the delivery needs to be. But I suppose the difference between Grant and I at this point was that I've had a long period of time slowly working into all the different genres mm. of the media where he, that was his first foray into something yeah. big. And that was, it, it, it is really hard because there's these expectations that – um, because you've been good at one thing in sport, that you're going to be good at everything. And a lot of a lot of athletes actually have that confidence in themselves. You know, they think they're good at 
it could be a good tennis player, you're going to be great in business or whatever it might be. And of course, that's not the case. You might be able to think you can sing, but you haven't actually listened. Mm. Those are the key things about um, what you've got to learn post. And I think in my post career, Howie, is that I've always sat back and done it uh, incrementally to improve so I could get to this point. That's a key, I reckon. Um, And I, I didn't bite off more than I could chew and I was given opportunities and just slowly try to improve. And that's, that, a, that's, a, a, that's a big thing in what you have to do after. And the old uh, Anchorman style setup, were you wearing shorts underneath or did you go the full suit? <laughs> no, it was full suit and leather shoes because right. there is a side shot where oh, you actually- Oh, yeah. the side shot. and kill me. Yes. I no. hate the auto cue. <laughs> I hate the auto cue. I, I was grabbing my phone because uh, frequent listeners to this show know that I have a couple of kids yeah. and the one that's most engaged in the guest asks a question. So you get- uh, a question from my daughter, which relates to this. Her name is Sky. Yep. I now have, I can't believe this, Woody. We can talk about parenting at some stage. I now have a teenager in the house yeah. as of last week. She turned 13, but she started on this show as a seven-year-old um, and her nickname is The Pickle. So you now get the question from The Pickle. <laughs> Hi, Todd. Pickle here. I've recently started playing tennis for school and I really enjoy playing doubles. Mum was showing me the Woodies playing doubles on YouTube and you guys were amazing. Anyways, you've recently started reading the sport on the news. What I want to know, is it hard to learn a new skill like that? I like Good it. on you, Pickle. Um, she's going places. You can tell that already. Well, she's, she's, <laughs> she's had seven years of experience in the world of podcasting. Look, uh, um, it is hard. Yeah. But I, I think... Preparation is key, and I'm not um, over the top in prep, but I do like to feel that I've covered my bases because I panic if I don't feel like I've done the work, and I panic anyway. (laughs) And in a situation like that, there's just no way you can put yourself, what I've learned at my age is don't put yourself in a place to fail. Put yourself in a place where you might, but if, if you've done your work, you'll, you'll be all right. You'll get through it. And I think if you even feel like you fail just that little bit, um, just take it on and own it a little bit, have fun with it. And because then people actually tend to warm to you better. Um, I'll go home and be really angry with myself, but I'll laugh at myself at that moment and kind of go, well, <laughs> that happened. And from there, you learn to control yourself a little bit better. And I, I just, I like the feeling of having done that work. And that was me as a tennis player too. The warm up had to be really good. I had to hit every shot well once to be able to go in and play well in a match. If, I'd have war- if I warmed up badly, the head was in a mess. Okay. And so even now I'm a bit like that. I have to be able to be in that. And even on the weekend, I rang one of my, um, the sport boss, I sent him a note can't tell you I wrote in the note because <laughs> I thought I'd messed something up badly. And he rang me the next day and he goes, oh, I saw your note. I, I panicked. I thought it was a full car crash and I've watched it. And he said, where was it? Yeah. And that was, that was how I reacted. So I would say to Pickle, um, just keep working, whatever you want to do, just work on it to a point that you can um, be confident in yourself and that you know that if you feel like you failed, actually you haven't. And that, that's a little bit like that for me. 
I love the advice, and I'll pass that on to the young 13-year-old. As I said, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Mine have gone into their 20s now, so I don't own a teenager anymore. Well, we can talk about how you get from 13 to 20. We need we need mm. to discuss that in the podcast. Uh, let's talk about you as young Todd. Mm. So was young Todd always looking like young, young, young Todd? Like you, surely you at 18 you couldn't get into the pub because you look at your you're past 50 now, aren't yeah. you? You just looked like <laughs> when you played on the court, you, you looked 15. I did. and Just naturally gifted in that area? I guess so. My uh, my siblings were a bit like that as well, and my brothers. Right. Um, ah, the youth. Um, it was very hard in America. To get into the pub for a beer. Because it was 21. And, you would have you needed know, to be 35 reckon, to get in the door. I, I think I was 30 and I still <laughs> was getting carded when I was living in the US. So but it's I, paying I, off now. By the time I was 30, I was quite happy for right. that to happen actually. But uh, it's always been been the case. And it's something that you always learn to take advantage of yes. what attributes you have. Yes. And as a youngster... I, you know, used to travel, we traveled away and as tennis players, you're going away for four months and you're in a team. And I was always the one that was sent up to the check-in and we would scour the check-in to see who looked like the warmest of people that we would be able to get our excess luggage on with. And they sent baby face with And I would go up and try and (laughs) flutter the eyelids and be as sweet and cute as could be to be able to get our luggage on. And so that was our coach, Ray Ruffles, Australian Jason Stoltenberg, Richard Fromberg, Johan Anderson, and that, that was what used to happen. So I was always that one that was the sweet one. If anybody needed to get warmth... I was the one thrown there. Didn't mean I didn't have a temper, by the way. I'm sure you'll come to that at some point. But mm. even at even at tournaments, you know, you could get grumpy old ladies that would only give you three balls for the day to practice with, <laughs> and you'd have to go up and sweet talk them, and then get two cans for the day. Um, and that and that is something that I I learned early on how to um, ingratiate yourself with people as you travel, particularly for us in Europe. When I first started traveling in the 80s, um, you know, we, we didn't speak a language and it was really hard and very different to today, you know, where you could translate something off your phone or whatever. Mm. We had to, we had to do it old school at the beginning. And so that was the craft of learning how to, uh, learning how to survive right. um, as a teenager who left home at 14, which is what I did. Well, before we get to when you left home, when, when do you discover Tennis. How, how does tennis come to uh, you? So tennis, tennis came to me. Like I, I've, I've got a picture of actually every picture of me in black and white from the the mid seventies. So from seventy, I was born in seventy one. So seventy four, seventy five. I had a tennis racket in my hand. So at, at two or three, I or would four. walk around with a tennis racket, like like some kids you see with cricket bats or yep. a golf club. That was me with a tennis racket. My mum, my mum was a really keen player. She played competition three times a week, and so my. I literally was in the stroller at the tennis club and that was all I ever wanted to do. You know, I remember vividly we had this little, I went back not long ago to have a look. It doesn't resemble what my memories were, but where I first was born and grew up and we had a little tiny veranda. It was probably about um, 15 foot long. It was a fibro house. Eventually it was brick um, veneered, you know, where the mum and dad renovated it. And it was about probably six, eight feet wide by 15 feet. And there, you walked up steps and then left into the front door. And there was a wall there. And I used to come and hit on that wall. And that main wall was dad, mum and dad's bedroom. And dad was a, a police officer cop. And he was, 
he used to do night shift and he'd come home and I'd get up in the morning, start banging on his wall, hitting tennis balls. And, um, and he never stopped me from doing it. But, you know, even, so I must've been up four at that point. And I remember walking around from the back of the house, two rackets and a, and a ball. And my mum used to knit as everyone used to do in those days. And there used to be a little paper wrapping around a, uh, a ball of wool and they were my sweatbands. And oh. I'd come out put the little sweat bands on and I would visualize that I was coming in to play Ken Rosewell at right. Wimbledon because Ken Rosewell was from my club at, at the Illawarra Tennis Club in Sydney in Rockdale and, and there was pictures of him on the wall and I knew he was the big star and, and I knew he had been at Wimbledon and that was what I would do and I was like four or five at that point. So it's funny, there are people in life that you that I now see and you've met and see and young kids you see, you know the path they're on. And somehow it's everybody's job around them mm. to just keep them on that path. And I was one of those. And did you have siblings to play tennis with? No. Um, I had siblings, but not really to play tennis with. So my brothers, um, uh, Greg, uh, was 13 years older than me when I was born. And my brother, Warren, was 11. Oh, right. So by the time I can remember, uh, Greg was married and out of the house and my brother Warren was always around. He played a bit of tennis, Warren, um, and I did play with him. I, I played Saturday afternoon adult comp with him when I was nine. Huh. He was the first one to take me into adult comp. Um, but he was a bit of a dodgy player um, in that as a kid, as happens in in those times, he, he'd been out fishing with my dad, brother, rock fishing, and pulled the line and got snagged, pulled the line, the sneaker case, um, uh, sinker came back and hit him in the eye. And mum and dad didn't do much about it. So one of his eyes was dodgy. So he struggled to hit the ball on one side. He used to miss. Oh, a fishing accident. Yeah, fishing accident. And so, but, you know, he's obviously very supportive. And um, I think it was his forehand was dodgy because he'd turn his head and he kept missing. Um, <laughs> but anyways, um, that, they, they were there, but they, it was really mum that, that did all that stuff. And then my dad, who used to work three jobs to support it. So did going. you have much relationship with your brothers being older? Did, did one of your brothers come yeah. uh, unstuck? Well, I think, I think that's a really important part of my story um, in this is that there are parts of your life that make you make decisions to become who you are. And my brother, Greg, um, both of my brothers have passed away. I'm sorry um, They both passed away at 58. Um, Greg... Uh, unfortunately, when he was in school, got caught up in beginning of drugs. Um, how he started, I guess it was probably smoking, marijuana, whatever. He, but it became fully fledged to be a heroin, heroin addict. This is your brother. This is my, my brother and, and at, a, at a young age. And so my dad was a, a copper. Mum was a hairdresser, very simple backgrounds. And when we found that out, I was around about 10. And my dad had left the force. He, he ended up having to retire medically unfit in his mid fifties due to the stresses and everything that were happening with, with Greg. So he was trying to get him on the straight and narrow. It was very difficult to do that. Um, because he, he had become a fully fledged addict to the point where he would con everybody and everything. You know, I lost, he, he would empty the house out we'd have to go to the hawk shop and buy all of our belongings back. So he could sell it to, to pay for stuff. Feed his habit. So in the early days of ATMs, he managed to uh, empty mum's bank account to $0. Um, he 
he did it all, I guess, you know, to survive. I made a decision at that point. I was watching this at 10 and you saw what's happening with the family. You know, you, you, kids see, but they don't react. And even at that point, I knew I had to make something of my life. I did not want to be caught up in what was happening there. I had to be something bigger and better. And I, I guess somehow already knew that tennis was that vehicle for me. So that's why sometimes for me, it was so important to be successful and probably push myself a bit too hard at times, but that drove that. And then my other brother, Warren, being just two years, two and a half years younger, he was the one that knew what was going on. And he was the one that was always threatened to don't tell. And it made it a very tough life for him. I felt that he was the one that was always in the middle of mum and dad trying to save their oldest to the youngest that came along. At, at, you know, by the time I was 12, I was the golden child because I looked like I was going to have a career in, in, in sport like that. And uh, he had to deal with both of us. So it was a really tough family situation. And we got to the point though with Greg where my mum and dad did everything they could. They had no funds left. They're trying to fund me that we had to let him go. We had to say, you're on your own. And I, I vividly remember him. one afternoon, I'd been playing at White City Tennis Club, Rushcutters Bay in Sydney, and we were leaving to go home. We lived at Cronulla, which is 30, 40 minutes to the south. And we came out down a, a road and there was Greg walking down the road and we hadn't seen him for years. And he was out of his mind, you know, he was whacked. And, but mum and dad saw him and they didn't know if he was still alive or how he was going and they could see him. And that, moment in the car was quite compelling. Eventually he would ring my dad, but he wouldn't talk. He would always ring to let him know he was okay and that he was still going and, and alive because there was no other communication still around that point. Phones were, were not, uh, mobile phones weren't in your pocket. So the conversation wouldn't be had it, just the phone would ring. Yeah, and he knew who it was oh, and gee. it was okay and then he'd hang up. And eventually he got himself out of heroin um, through methadone and got a life back, but he had no health. So every major organ had issues in his body and he lived the last you know, 15 years of his life as a uh, pharmaceutical guinea pig of companies trialing drugs on him, trying to keep him alive. The only major disease, if you like, he didn't get was AIDS. He had every other hepatitis, everything else that you could possibly get, he had had at some point. So it was very, very challenging as a, as a young kid. Did you have conversations as you got older and he got older about Yeah, this I did. I, I eventually got to the point, Howie, um, when I retired. So when I was playing, he didn't tell anybody he was related to me. He didn't want them to know because people, he owed people money and he thought they'd come after me and he thought that would create a big media issue for me. So he, he, he just ignored the fact that we were related and I didn't talk about him much either. And then when I retired, I felt like it was unfair because my mum and dad needed to be able to express themselves. And now from the era where everything never got spoken about. Mm. And, and actually for my mum, it was really tough, but she, she got some therapy out of being finally able to talk about it. And I went to Greg and said, I want to do a piece about your life and my life and how it's affected us. This is once you started getting involved in the media, yeah. Mm. And, um, Jeez, mate. and he said, no, he didn't want to do it. He felt uncomfortable with that. And I obviously had to, you know, agree that that was right for him, but I wish he had of, but what I really wanted to do was 
you let him know that it was okay um, so that he could feel comfortable with himself in that because he was very proud. He was very proud of what I did um, and he wanted to shout to the rafters that, that, that I was his, I brother. Was his brother. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, he, he eventually passed away and he, he, did, he never really lived a great life. But from 10 years of age, I could see that was what was going to happen and it wasn't going to happen to me. So there was your driving mm. force. This is not a path I expected to go down. I mm. appreciate your honesty. Well, I, I, I think it's really important because what's happened when people hear about this part of my life, it touches everybody's life like we don't know. Yep. Someone has this story in their life and yep. it helps them to understand that somebody else can get through it and has lived it and it's okay. It is okay. And it's okay to share. It's, it's not embarrassing. It, it is normal and you have to, you have to deal with it and it helps you to deal with it. I know that it helped my mum and dad at the end. Um, it helped Greg at the end to not be embarrassed by it and understand it. And I really want people to be able to feel that there is support for them and that their friends around them, a lot of, they're embarrassed to tell their friends. That was my mum and dad's era. They, they felt like they'd failed as mm. parents and it's not the case. You can't control that. You really do need to um, seek that support network because sometimes it's just not your fault and you need someone to get out there and, and hold your hand. And eventually, like Greg did actually, he got to the point where he was really sorry that he'd been down that path and he wanted to live a life that was a bit better. And he had a few years where he was comfortable, but his body wouldn't allow him to actually do the things that he needed to. So if this was your motivation, mm. as you've so eloquently described it, the, the skill component of what you do, at, at what age did you become that kid? Oh, no, I'm playing against that Todd bloke. He's been smacking everyone. Was that when you first started playing tennis? Was it when you got to eight or 10 or 12? When did you become a, a potentially elite performer at the sport that you loved? Well, I hated losing even from a really young age. So I, I had a pretty, I, I've got a bit of a temper in that sense is that I hate, I hate losing. You weren't a I was probably my, I was, I was a bit of a curious of my era at times. You were throwing rackets with you. Oh, occasionally, yeah, absolutely. It's just that the videos have disappeared, fortunately. Right. And we didn't have cameras on the outside courts all the time. Did your parents say, hey? Oh, yeah. No, no. So my dad, um, this is a true story too. You know, my, I, I was playing, I don't know how old I was, eight, nine, ten, something like that. Um, threw a couple of rackets. Dad walked down, grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and pulled me off by the ear. Not allowed to do that anymore. But I remember it well, and yes, I still had a few meltdowns, but that one still rings. You know, if you're going to do that, son, you're not, you're not getting out there. Get off the court. And that hurt me more that I couldn't get on the court mm. than what my ear did, you know? Right. <laughs> and, and that was what my dad was like. My dad didn't mind that I was competitive, yep. but I wasn't, gonna be, I wasn't allowed to do that. No. And, it's know. a funny sport like that, isn't it? Like, I, I've only played tennis socially, and I've played quite a few sports. And I've never had the feeling of frustration and anger <laughs> that comes in tennis. We shouldn't I, because we get a second serve. It's a lot yeah, better I than know, other sports. Why is it about tennis that all of a sudden you can be having a social hit with a friend and it starts to get to you? Well, it's the person you're playing gets to you. Yeah. You know, it's because because you, you, you don't like your mate as much as you thought you did. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're more competitive also than, than you thought you are. Yeah. 
Welcome back to Todd in a moment. Next up on the show, we are stepping into the ring with boxer Harry Garside. Now, Harry can fight, but this is an incredible young man who defies every stereotype, every stereotype associated with his sport. I have a message. That's all it is. And I truly, I've copped a fair bit of criticism. I mean, a lot of, I'm probably 65% male-based following yep. on my social media. Um, and a lot of them are probably boxing fanatics, I would imagine. So yep. um, a lot of the boxing crowd, they a little bit more old-fashioned and, and that's totally fine. I respect their opinion and I respect, but of course I cause a bit of, uh, like cop a bit of criticism and, and, and stuff like that. But I believe in what I'm saying. All it is, it's like, I just want people to to be themselves. That's it. You mean, and I want other people not to judge them for being different. As long as they're not hurting, hurting you or hurting anyone else, like what does it really matter? I just think we label people too quickly. We we criticize people too quickly. We like to chop people down too quickly mm. for being different to being unique. Um, but I actually think the older I've got, it's a superpower to be unique and to be different. Um, I just didn't realize that when I was younger. When you're younger, you want to be, you want to fit in, you want to be cool, you want to yes. be part of the popular group, but. The older I get, the more I realize that it's actually a superpower, our difference in this world. And we've all got a difference. That's the beautiful thing about being individuals. That is the wise soul that is Harry Garside, next up on the show. Let's get back to Todd. So what what was the first thing that you won that you thought, hang on, maybe this is something I can do? Ah, I never thought it was something I wasn't going to do. Oh, right. So straight from the start, yeah. I'm going to be a tennis player. Yeah. <laughs> because I've got, as again, I've got, I've got old pictures that, you know, my first tennis team I was in was um, in, in Sydney. We used to play on backyard courts, so ha- houses with courts, and that was the local comp. You just went from house to house, and you all had names and teams. And my, my house was called Country Club, and we had this really good team that all ended up playing, you know, state uh, junior tennis. And, but, but I started at six in that team, and we won our first comp. <laughs> and I, that was, that was what I was going to do. You know, every picture that I look at, I was already going to be doing what, where I was going. It was never, in my mind, it was never, I wasn't going to. Sometimes I thought I, I was failing and maybe I couldn't, but it was always the journey. And that's what I look back at now and go, oh, geez, if I was, I'm a parent now, I'm going, oh, geez, you know. But I never, I never stopped wanting to achieve that, which is really hard to imagine because now I understand how hard it is. Mm. Uh, and I, I can look at six, nine, knowing I started to play adult comp at nine, 11, I went overseas for the first time in a, in a touring team. Where'd you go? To the US. At 11? hmm <laughs> That's what we did. Where'd you go in America? We went and played the, the Cal State. We went and played the USTA Nationals. Was everybody else 11? Yeah, right. 11 and 12. Right. So I played 12. When the next year I was 12, I played Michael Chang for the first time. Did you? Yeah. French Open winner? Yeah. Right. So that's that's how early in tennis you actually kind of... I didn't know it was that early. Yeah, you kind of know. We know in tennis at 9, 10, 11 what the potential is and, 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 and an athlete has to go all the way. So how old were you when you had to leave home to go and... Did you go the you went the AIS, didn't you? I, I did go the AIS, but first I got put into custom credit operation tennis with John Newcomb and Tony Roach. Um, oh, custom, I remember the yeah, ad for the old custom that's credit. Right. With a custom loan from custom credit, Peter and Carol put in this superb new kitchen. With and they and they had an amazing program. And I used to live on the south side of Sydney, and the 
they were on the north side up around Normanhurst Hornsby. And I, uh, year eight, it was, um, I would board with a family on the other side of town, Monday to Friday. I'd go home for the weekend. Mum, dad picked me up. We'd drive across Sydney, which was about an hour and a half drive. And, uh, I changed schools. So I actually went to, I went to Woolaware High for year seven, Normanhurst Boys High for year eight, back to Woolaware for year nine, Lynham High in Canberra for year 10, and Lake Gin and Derra College for 11 and 12. So you went through five? Yeah. When you- so, so I, you know, I left, year eight, I left home for the year, came back. So 14, turning 15, I was gone forever from home. With, with Newt, sorry to sidetrack you, what was it? Did he make you drink the... Um- was it the Robinson's Barley No, water? it was Lucasade. Lucasade. Yeah, dreadful stuff. stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's what you're meant to drink when you had a day off No, school. it was Staminade. 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 They're all an aid. <laughs> so how old were you when you like, – what, what's your first check from tennis? How old were you when you turned pro? Um, Probably 13, I reckon. You turned pro at 13? Well, we didn't – you know, tennis, that's a weird thing about our sport, and this is what hacks me off about, you know, that my love of golf, mm. you know, People say, oh, there's amateurs. and Tennis, it was 1968, 69 that we turned, everyone just said, we all go out and play. Right. And so if you were good enough to play in a, uh, a, a local tournament that had a you know, $100 gift voucher check, you just took it. So what would have been your first prize money? Oh, the first decent prize money, yeah. I think I was 15 yeah. and I made the final of a challenger in Brisbane. So okay. they were my first ATP points. Right. So I was pretty big at 15. What type of check are we talking? Uh, that would have been about $1,500. So does it go into a bank account? Yeah, my bank account. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, that, and, and that, was, that was what we did, you know. I, I mean, by the time I was in the AIS, so I got my driver's license, I was able to buy my first car. Which was? Uh, a, a red Toyota Corolla C-Cup with the hatchback. And I did have the little flary bit at the back. Of course you did. Yeah. Of course you did. That was pretty good. So as a youngster. But I did have, I did have woolen seat covers, you know, the sheepskin. Oh, of course yeah. you did. <laughs> I can't really believe I did that. Sydney anyway. in summer. Nice. <laughs> so as, as a young fella, before you're buying your car, um, you talked about America. Like, what, where, what type of places? Give me a... Give me some of the places you went and tell me a story as a 15-year-old being overseas. Oh, well, what about a 12-year-old? Because at 12, I went and played the Sport Goofy Junior World Championships at Disney World in Orlando. And <laughs> That's got to be the dream, doesn't it? That was it? the dream. You know, we stayed at the Disney Hotel where <laughs> Mickey Mouse was the phone. You picked up his arm and you talked into, <laughs> into his hand. Um, and, and as life does sometimes, I ended up living in Orlando. You know, so... I was 12, 10 years later, I buy a house there and I end up living there for 11 years in the same city. Um, but that, that was the beginning of actually meeting a group of players who would go on to become Grand Slam champions, the likes of Monica Sellers, Richard Krejcik, Michael Chang, hmm. um, and a long list of players that didn't win majors that still were top 20 players in the world were all together playing this world championship. And so, so that, that was quite instrumental too, because that was the first look at who yeah. was your, uh, who were the challenges, who, how good you had to be and what you were going, you know, what you had to do to be able to be there. And you knew what you had to go home and practice. And, and when, when you were on these trips, I, I'm very privileged, um, to work with Mark Waugh, who I think is one of the best special commentators in cricket yep. going around and, and certainly one of the best I've worked with. I've discussed this with him. When they'd got on tour, his 
brother Stephen would take a camera and go and see everything. Yeah. Junior would stay in the hotel yeah. and watch a movie. Were, were you focused on tennis or even at that young age, were you... Yeah, I know. Did, did you go out and explore? Yeah. Yeah. So I always had this ability. I was probably... Because I was um, the younger child, I was brought up with adults. Mm. All the time. I didn't were. really have a lot of kids around me. And yep. then I was tennis. Tennis was, could I get any adult to give me a hit? You know, at, at my club in Sydney those days, it was a licensed club. So you weren't allowed in, um, pokies and, and alcohol. So I had to sit outside all the time where all the adults sat inside. So I would walk around my tennis club, which had a dozen courts. And it was that, those times in the center was pretty busy. And I would go from court to court, had a little, little cubby house type um, uh box at the end of it that, you know, if you were playing on that court, everyone sat while they were waiting for each exchange of sets. And I would go talking to all these people, trying to get a hit. And so I was really able to talk to adults. Which is a great skill for a kid. I yeah. keep telling my kids this, yeah. look them in the eye, shake their exactly. hand, use their name. I've done that with my son uh, in particular. And anyway, so that meant that by the time I started to travel, I wanted to do different things. And Ray Ruffles was um, my coach when we started, you know, mid-teens to go to Europe and that. And he would make sure that we all did something outside of hit tennis okay. balls. Okay. So so culturally, you know, going to a museum, music, um, golf was a part of that beginning of my love of golf was, was through that. And so that's what my life has been like. I do, do some stuff that people look at you and go, you're odd, but not really. So you mentioned at the start about singles and doubles, mm. um, and you know you played a, a Wimbledon semi final as a singles player. I mm. think I think that gets lost. But but why? What did you recognise from this super competitive guy that you're going to go down the doubles path? Well, put it this way: I never went down the doubles path. Right, right. I played everything. Yep. I wanted to be a Wimbledon singles champion. I didn't have the game for it. Uh, the reality hits you at some point. Uh, what, so when does it hit you? Uh, probably early 20s. And what's that like when your whole you, world You is... go, okay, well, by then you start to learn you're in a business. If you're smart, you, you understand that you are, you're running your own business. And how am I going to get the best out of my business to do as well as I can to set myself up for life? And that is my approach early on. Um, you know, I'm, I'm out there at a young age playing Boris Becker, Ivan Lendl, um, it was Jimmy Connors at the end of his career, and I'm coming up with Pete Sampras, Jim Courier, uh, Michael Chang. But when I'm playing Boris Becker, he's six foot four, and I'm five foot ten. I, I, I'm a wet rag flying in the wind, and he's this mm. big, strong guy. How am I competing against him? It's the wrong, wrong weight division. Mm. And you, you work that out, that physically you've got to be something that maybe you can't. And that's why on the doubles court, I could negate the power. Um, I, I think to go back to the beginning of your question then yeah. about doubles, I, from the age of 10, I won every nationals. I never lost to nationals. I won two twelves, two fourteens, two sixteens, three eighteens. And then I won seven junior Grand Slam doubles titles to go with my other record there. I didn't even mention those. I no. feel sorry. So I, I actually, I don't know why. I just, I knew how to pick a partner. That was, that was crucial. And then I knew how to be able to lead and to be led in those environments. And that, that was just a natural thing for me. And I loved winning. I cannot stand, Howie, 
watching young tennis players go out and think the doubles is not worth anything and that it's okay to flip around and lose. How can you be happy losing? Mm. I don't understand that. Mm. So I, I put 100% into every time I walked out on the, the tennis court, no matter what event I was playing in, because I hated to lose. So how would you deal with losing? Like you made a Wimbledon semifinal, you've been beat by Pete Sampras in singles. Yep. How, how do you deal with losing? Uh, well, that was a good week. I played at that particular time. I played as good as I could. I, I actually so that's played, okay. I'm okay. I played as well as I could. I didn't like losing when I didn't play well. Um, and it, ultimately, I was probably better playing in big occasions on bigger courts. Woodbridge is playing playing very well. Sampras is only winning about something around forty percent of his second serves. Which is very unusual. It means Woodbridge is returning Sampras's second serve very well. Um, because it made me focus more. My temper was more in check than being distracted on a place that I didn't want to be. And I learned that after a while too. It's hard to be playing in Timbuktu yep. and feeling good about yourself. So that, that, that's the thing that fascinates me about tennis is it's such an individual sport. Like I, I work on cricket and footy at the moment. You lose, you lose with the team. What happens when you're in yeah. Timbuktu and you haven't yep. played well and you're by yourself and yeah. you're having a crappy burger and in a dodgy hotel yeah, room? Yeah, that's, that's the, the hardest part about being a tennis player is that you've – I won a lot in doubles, but it's, it's unusual for a lot of people. They lose every week. And so for three three days of that week you win matches, you think you're – hot you think you are the best in the world you know and then the next day you lose and you think you're the pits of the earth and trying probably at the end of my career that was the thing I enjoyed most was not having that roller coaster of emotion and not feeling the self-worth drop because of a loss so it affects self-worth oh 100 percent so you know that sends me off in a different tangent of being a commentator and actually commentating on what I got in front of me to trying to put myself in that athlete's space to know what might be going on behind them and off the court and how they are emotionally. Mm. And because I think we, we see Nick Kyrgios talk about that a fair bit at the moment. Well, he's, he's not the first. No. Sometimes he thinks he is and he won't be the last. There were moments in my life where I felt that you are a failure. How pathetic are you? Really, should you be around here? Pathetic's a strong word. Well, I can promise you, at times you're thinking, doesn't work for me. I shouldn't be doing this. Why am I doing it? Uh, you get you get some pretty pretty dark thoughts. So they, what, they, they fly through like everybody thinks about some dark thoughts. Mm. Dark thoughts are what, did you know, do I, do I end it all? Not quite like that, but geez, some, some of them are like, I just got to get away from this. And I had those. So in my mind, I'm going to take you to a different part that I don't know if you had there or not, but 97 was the year of Wimbledon for me that I made the semis and, and I broke into the top 20. It just got to 19. And Which was, is a phenomenal yeah, effort. Yeah, I hope uh, you can look back uh, now oh, I and do. say I was the 19th best tennis nah, player in the world. I do. And I remind people when they tell me I couldn't play singles. Right. So <laughs> say you should. <laughs> But to 97, uh, and I used to live on a fine line, uh, that white, that, what do you call it? Fever. What do we call it? White line fever. Yeah. That was me. And everyone kind of knew that. Get me away from tennis court. wasn't like that at all, but win and loss, it was horrible. My wife would be able to talk through that. She was the one that had to deal with it. 
Then in 98, uh, my dear friend, Stuart Appleby and his wife, Renee, were really close with us. And so we lived in, together in Orlando and we lived in a place um, and played at a place called Isleworth, which is renowned for Tiger Woods mm. living there. And so Payne Stewart had become a mentor to me. He was the US Open PGA champion. And he, his wife, Tracy's Australian. She's actually coming to visit and watch the Australian Open with us this year. And they were, they were, they were real mentors because I, I used to play golf with Payne. I'd play tennis with Payne. And then Payne and Tracy were the first people at our door when Stuart's wife, Renee, was killed. 90, that was 98. Payne's crash was 99. At an airport? Did she get so she, she had, um, Stuart had missed the cut at the Open and they were going over to Paris for holiday, check, be tourists, and they had got into London, got a cab to Waterloo Station, uh, got to Waterloo Station, were, were getting out of a cab and the car behind, in, instead of reversing, put the gears into Ford and crushed her between two cars. Good. And so she, she didn't make it. And when I got a call from Stuart uh, about that, we we're in Orlando early morning, six o'clock. He said, she's gone. I'm sort of, you wake up in the, what? Yeah. And I called Payne Tracy and they were there within 30 minutes on our doorstep because we were young Australians there and they knew we would struggle with that. And all of a sudden he was gone. He was killed tragically in a, in a crash, an airplane crash where his plane decompressed and flew across the nation and eventually ran out of fuel and crashed. And was reported as flying across the nation with yeah. no response, yeah. wasn't it? Tragic yeah. story. Yeah. The golf world is mourning the death of U.S. Open champion Payne Stewart and five others. Now comes the investigation into one of the most unusual incidents in U.S. aviation history today, Tuesday, October 26, 1999. And that was when we were actually in Europe when that had happened. And um, Jim Courier uh, was living in Orlando. He's a friend of mine. And Jim used to take net jets and fly around the country privately and Payne was in a private plane like that. And he called our hotel rooms, the Intercontinental in Stuttgart. And I had been in dinner in the hotel, walked past the television, saw it, got into the room, and then the phone rings and it's Jim. And he says, I'm trying to check, but I think Stuart's on the plane as well. And I knew Stuart wasn't on the plane. So that was sort of good. That's Stuart Appleby. Yep. Um, and eventually the plane crashes and our life changes. Um, because of that. So those two things happen within, uh, it was about a year. I really didn't fire up in singles after that. I learned that I couldn't keep living on this white line fever for my own singles. I just couldn't do it anymore. I had to like find a way to just sit back and be level and doubles gave me that chance because of being able to communicate. But that was life changing because you at that point in my life, everything felt invincible. You just, there, were, there was nothing in your life that had happened to a point where I thought, I am not in total control. Two things to two people that are really close make you realize you're not always in control and that you've got to live it a bit differently. And that was a, actually really good for me, really, really good. I learned how to enjoy myself better. I learned how to take myself to high intensity but not feel like I was failing anymore. And that's where I go from 
the, that failing and self-worth to understanding actually you're going all right. But it was Renee's death to pain support to them, him passing, that mm. really made me a very different human. And that meant by the time I was 28, 29, 30, I realized what I could do, what I wanted to do, and how I could do it in a way that was better for my health. So by that stage, you'd obviously played a lot with Mark. Yep. Um, you said you were very good at choosing a partner. Did he choose you? Did you choose him? <laughs> well, I guess you end up choosing each other, but I felt like I chose him a bit oh. and then he recognized it was good too. Uh, he'd been playing with John McEnroe. And, I didn't know that. Yeah, we'd won a US Open with John McEnroe in 89, I think. And McEnroe was retiring and he told me, look, I'm not going to play much anymore. You need to sort yourself out, get someone if you want to play regularly. And um, I had been playing with Jason Stoltenberg, who sort of, we'd gone really well, but Solst didn't really want to play doubles all the time. He said, I'm going to focus on my singles. And we'd been in the quarters of Wimbledon. And I'm thinking, hello, I'm a teenager. I'm in the cause of Wimbledon doubles. I can do pretty good here. And Mark came along. And so he was a bit older. He was lefty and all the great teams have been left, yes. right. Um, he'd won a major. So, he, you know, I, I was knew I was going to be a bit nervous about doing that because I used to get a bit tight and he was able to work through that. Um, his personality was a personality that I knew would help me because he's, he's pretty stoic and full of self-confidence and I could be less than that at times. And so we, we approached and we played. Funny enough, we actually played on the wrong side. I'm a forehand court player, huh. but he'd played that court with John McEnroe. So, you know, he's the older guy, he's the Grand Slam champion. So he took that, he took that side for the first few times we played and I went to the backhand side and eventually we did okay. Did you win first up? Uh, no, we didn't win first up, we, but we made a couple of semis and okay. stuff and eventually one year we're like, it was, must've been 91. We're playing in Sydney and we're a set all. And I said, oh, can we change sides? Cause I'm not enjoying this. And we flipped like at the beginning of the third set, which you're allowed to do. And <laughs> that was history. Damn, Woodbridge, Woodford. And from then on, um, we won our first tournament. I think we made the semis Australian open. So that was 91 won our first tournament a few weeks later in Copenhagen together um, in Europe in the indoor season. And from that moment on, I think we it's approximately every fourth tournament we played, we won. Game seven match, Woodbridge, Woodford, 6-3, 6-3. A lovely little cameo of a match, and the Woodies display once again why they're the best pair in the world. That is the end of Todd Woodbridge Part A. See ya for the second set.